Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. In this show, we discuss topical foreign policy issues. I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries who discuss their life and career, often with digressions about historic foreign policy events in which their life and career intersected. And we cover often overlooked issues in global affairs. If you want to learn more, visit globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now on with the show. My guest today, David Beasley, is the executive director of the World Food Program. We caught up not long after he visited both the Sahel region of Western Africa and North Korea, where the World Food Program is actively engaged. We kick off discussing the situation in the Sahel, where food security conditions are rapidly deteriorating because of a combination of lower-than-expected rainfall and conflict. Beasley describes what the World Food Program is doing to both prevent the immediate impacts of hunger and also build resilience among communities affected by the ever-expanding Sahara Desert. We also discuss the link between food security and extremism. We then discuss a trip he took to North Korea a few weeks ago, including his overall impressions of food availability in North Korea and how nuclear diplomacy may impact the humanitarian situation on the ground. Uh, For some context, David Beasley took over as executive director of the World Food Program one year ago. He is a former politician who previously served as governor of the state of South Carolina. And I must say, it was a pleasure to catch up with the executive director and learn more about his work in this still new role. As always, you can reach out to me using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Love hearing from you guys. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. And as you are listening to this, I am en route to Yerevan, Armenia, where I will be participating in the Aurora Humanitarian Initiative, which is a human rights conference and prize that will be announced in the coming week in Armenia. And I'll uh, try to do some great interviews from Yerevan as well with some really interesting people who are participating in this conference. So stay tuned. For now, here is my conversation with World Food Program Executive Director David Beasley. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, the Sahel is a very fragile area in the world and in Africa with climate impact and fragile governments uh, along with extremist groups, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, ISIS infiltrating, trying to take advantage of the of the conditions that exist on the ground. And so going there was to help examine what we're doing, how well uh, what we're doing is uh, to be evaluated, and it 
at the same time bring attention uh, to the donors around the world, to the crisis that we face, and that if we don't address this crisis now, there's going to be a very severe price to be paid at multiple multiples time the cost of doing it right on the front end. So so what and does so, the crisis look like? I, I know that, that you uh, personally visited uh, a number of countries in the Western Sahel. What does this look like on the ground, this crisis today? Well, we spent days on the ground in several countries like uh, Niger, Mali, and Senegal, just to name a few, and really assessing the situation. You're talking about uh, five to six million people right now that are food insecure, uh, that are facing severe conditions, and the number of children, uh, millions of children are, whose lives are in jeopardy coming upon this very difficult lean season upon us. It has started earlier this year uh, because of drought, because of lack of rainfall. Uh, and when you add all of that together, uh, it's a difficult situation. And so if we don't do something, uh, You'll see, number one, lives destroyed, uh, families broken, and migration will substantially spike. And the migration that, that will take place uh, from destabilization now will include ISIS and uh, Al-Qaeda, and this is uh, unacceptable. So what we want to do is stabilize the area with effective programs that build resilience. And when you do that, and stabilize the area, migration goes down, and then you end up having the right kind of migration that everybody's okay with. And so we went into these countries, uh, evaluated some of the programs that we have already initiated, like food for asset programs, and I can talk about several of those. Yeah, uh, why don't you in, sort of walk walk me through an example of, of what some of these programs that uh, you're working on that WFP is, is involved in that help to build resiliency looks like on the ground? Well, and it's not just WFP. I mean, we partner with many other UN agencies, whether it's UNICEF or FAO, EFAD, and the list goes on, because uh, we believe that when we have a comprehensive approach, there'll be much more effective results as opposed to trying to silo approach. But let me just give an example in Niger. Uh, in this particular region, we know uh, because of climate change that the, the Sahel is being dramatically impacted by the Sahara moving down at a rate of about 1.5 kilometers per year. That compounded with lack of rainfall uh, throughout the Sahel. Uh, and when you, anybody that knows this area, uh, when, they, when they understand the history, the tradition, for example, the, the herders, pastoralists who move their cattle, uh, these are nomadic people, and they move their cattle, their animals, millions of, of animals throughout the Sahel. And when there's not the fodder, the grazing that they need because of the, the Sahara moving down and the lack of rainfall, then they have to move further south uh, toward sub-Sahara. And as they move further south, what happens? They enter into graze into croplands by farmers, and that results in killings. Uh, conflict, uh, insecu you know, serious insecurity, and the extremist groups come in and exploit that, take advantage of that, and the extremist groups put up barriers so that the cattle can't be moved here to there, which further exacerbates the situation. And so when we come in and can provide food for asset type projects, uh, let me give you an example mm -hmm. of just a few. One is 
And I've walked down this road, uh, and I say road now, you know, in the area we're talking about, these are dirt roads. Uh, and it's pretty much just a, a path uh, in this Sahel area that's almost desert-like. And on one side, there's nothing. I mean, just dr- drought-stricken, hard, uh, just dirt. On the left side, for example, as I'm walking and driving down this road, is fodder, grasslands for the cattle, for the animals. And so what's the difference? Uh, they get such little rainfall. You literally talk about just inches of rainfall per year. And so we developed, uh, working with uh, the local farmers, what we call half moons. Hmm. And in the half moon, it might be 15 uh, meters or 15, 20 feet. And this half moon where we dig holes and then we, we dig a little mound uh, in a half-moon circle that captures the little bit of water that does fall. And it concentrates the water in these holes, which allows for the growing of crops, growing of fodder for the cattle and for the animals. And so as you walk down this road, on one side where this program has not been implemented versus the other side where it has been implemented, it's amazing what you see. And what's interesting to me, I mean, I mean, it it's, yeah. doesn't seem like it's like a uh, technologically sophisticated intervention. It's just uh, fairly straightforward and one that seems to be sort of scalable. This is, yeah, this is the beauty of it. And this is what we're trying to showcase to the donors. This does not require uh, major equipment. This just requires manpower and technique. It's very simple using shovels uh, and hose simple projects, and it can be scaled up nationwide. We believe that we can absolutely provide food security nationwide with this program scaled up. And in fact, the areas that we've gone in and done this, and I'm not talking about a few acres, I'm talking about dozens of thousands of hectares where the land has been rehabilitated and where we've done this, the food security, the income goes up, migration goes down, conflict goes down and we have an exit strategy we actually can actually go out of there for so the first couple of years we want to provide the food security for the families and then after the first couple of years we then start working on getting better roads better schools better bridges to get the excess crops or, or cattle or livestock to the marketplace so first is securing the families themselves in these in these very fragile communities. And then the second is then their incomes go up, their productivity of crops and grazing and cattle goes up. Then you want to get that to the market, which means you're stimulating the economy. And when we do this, uh, ISIS or Boko Haram mm-hmm. or Al Qaeda cannot use food as a weapon of recruitment. So, so can I, I can I ask? Yeah, this is actually what yeah. I wanted to ask you about because now you've mentioned this several times. This link between food security and extremism, and and we know in this area it, it is ripe with extremism in, in Boko Haram and, and ISIS, particularly in like the Lake Chad Basin area. What what is that that link between sort of food as a weapon of war, food security, and uh, extremism? Well, I have. You know, when you feed the World Food Program, we feed about 90 million people, uh, you know, give or take, in, like in 2017. And when you feed that many people, you learn a lot. You talk to a lot of people. You learn about their lives, what struggles and shocks and 
what, what their life is truly being impacted with. And I have talked to mother after mother who told me my husband did not want to join ISIS, but we had no food. And they came with food, and my husband had to join to keep our little girl alive. And so when we can come in and provide food, uh, number one, it, it keeps uh, extremism down. Number two, when we can provide food coupled with sustainability where they can take care of themselves, uh, that becomes a very strong community. And we can showcase community after community where there's resilience and sustainability uh, that extremism's opportunities for exploiting a very fragile, vulnerable community uh, goes down uh, extraordinary uh, in an extraordinary way. We see that firsthand. So as I tell the major donors, if we come in and do it right, uh, it will save millions, if not billions of dollars in the long haul versus if you don't do it right and you end up with destabilization and then you have forced uh, migration infiltrated by extremist groups who want to exploit that to go into Europe and create havoc there. And so, as I explained to the Europeans, you think you had a problem with Syria, a nation of 20 million people. Uh, once it was destabilized and, and some a few million migrated into Europe uh, with a small percentage infiltrated by ISIS, I said, you think that was a problem? The greater Sahel is 500 million people. And ISIS has come in uh, partnering with al-Qaeda and Boko Haram and doing everything they can to destabilize. And we can't stick our heads in the sand and act like this is not a real problem. We know what they're wanting to do. And the people of and the children of Africa and the Sahel and the greater Sahel region, they deserve our help. They need our help. These are our brothers, our sisters, our friends, and we owe it to them to come in. And this is what's really truly amazing, too. Uh, they don't want to migrate. They want to stay where they are. But when they don't have food and they don't have food security, uh, they have no choice. But we've seen the studies that we've done, the results. When we come in uh, and talk to the families, they'll say that we don't want to move. But if we don't have food and security because they're linked, uh, we have to do what's necessary for our family and for our children. So and they will tell you, they'll tell you, Mark, they'll tell you, we don't want your food. We want to be self-sustainable, but we need you to help us get going. And so what I'm trying to do, and I'm and working with other UN agencies as well, is what's our exit strategy? Mm -hmm. How do we come in, formulate a comprehensive, effective program? We're in, we stabilize, sustainable development, resilience, and we're out of there and move to other areas that need our help. So I know that uh, in addition to the Sahel, you uh, recently took a trip to North Korea. Um, we're entering, I think, a pretty interesting diplomatic uh, moment with North Korea. Can you sort of set the scene? What does the, the food security situation look like in North Korea? What did you find on, on your trip? Well, I spent four days on the ground out in the field visiting uh, villages, farms, schools, uh, kindergartens, you name it. And I had access that was really quite remarkable. And, uh, and, and my team... Uh, this, can can you just talk about your access? Because that's really interesting to me as you know, an international official. Like, How many minders did you have following you all around at any time? How free were you to go where you wanted to go? Well, we we were very free to go where we wanted to go, but obviously we had we had minders and mm -hmm. uh, we had people with us, but they were not hindering at all. 
very, very helpful. And this was very important because, you know, people will say, well, yeah, you only went to the best spots and, you know, that kind of thing. And so my team uh, on the ground there, we have the biggest footprint of any operation on the ground. Uh, we have performed over 1,800 site visits in the past year throughout all uh, or almost all of North Korea. So I asked my team, I said, based on what you've seen in the past year in these 1,800 site visits, compared to what I've seen in these four days, was I seeing the best of the best or was I seeing the average reflective of the norm? And my team said, uh, you saw the average. You saw what truly is taking place in the country. And now, now let me tell you what I saw. What I, what I did not see was starvation. Uh, what I did see was malnutrition. Malnutrition that would be similar to many other countries around the world. This is a nation uh, that has very little mechanization. Uh, it was planting season when I was driving uh, and walking out in the countryside. Uh, planting season, oxen, pulling plows, men and women in the field with shovels and hoes and rakes, planting and taking advantage of every available inch of soil uh, they had. Very industrious, hardworking people. What most people in the world don't realize, North Korea's landscape is completely different than South Korea. Only 15 to 20 percent of the land is arable. In other words, you can plant crops. Uh, the rest of it is mountainous, and so harsh winters coupled with drought and flooding makes a very difficult uh, scenario to be food secure. They produce about 5 million metric tons of food. They need between uh, 6.5 and 7 million metric tons. And I believe with increased uh, yield, better seeds, uh, better practices, scientific uh, uh, successful programs, mechanization, that they can become food secure and address the malnutrition problem that they have. The calories is not their biggest problem. It's the right calories. They don't have the micronutrients. You can see uh, the anemia uh, throughout the population. Mm. They are, uh, you know, they, they, a lot of stunting, like you see in many other countries where you don't get proper nutrition. But very little electricity out in the countryside, very few mm-hmm. paved roads, uh, but the people were, were really hardworking. I, I was so impressed. I went to schools, talked to children, uh, and observed, talked to mothers, and talked to farmers, uh, and listened to their stories. And, and so the opportunity is great, and I'm hopeful that we can get past uh, uh, the political dynamics of where we are today to help uh, the children of North Korea have a much more prosperous well, future. Can, can I ask, what is the link between sort of broader political dynamics and diplomatic dynamics with North Korea? I mean, we're speaking ahead of, you know, uh, another potential, a potential summit between Trump and, and Kim and, you know, the broader humanitarian situation on the ground in, in North Korea. Well, what I, when I met with the leaders in at the highest levels, in North Korea, we had very practical discussions. We had the practical discussions about the politics of the day, the practical discussions about the sanctions and its impact. And as I was uh, having not just 15, 20-minute meetings, we had literally meetings that lasted several hours 
with the different ministers of the government. And as I was explaining to them that we need greater access, greater information, though we have greater access today than we've ever had, but we need even further data, further further information. And, and as I explained to them, I said, we're not asking for this information to embarrass you or in any way harm you. We're asking of you the same questions and need of, of data and information that we request and require of any country around the world. And if you want us to help you, we need for you to help us by getting, allowing us to, to assimilate and acquire the data that we need so that we can, in fact, uh, showcase to the donors uh, the needs, the opportunities to assure that the funds and the programs will be effective and the beneficiaries that we wish to target are, in fact, the beneficiaries that would receive the program support. And so the leaders, once they really began to understand that, uh, that we, were, we were sincere, we were not trying to play political games, but we were really there to uh, honestly assess the situation. And I explained to them that, you know, we're in 80 countries all over the world, the World Food Program, where there's stunting and malnutrition, and that the problems that you have here are not dissimilar to many other areas. And I said, if you'll work with us, uh, and I believe once this political stalemate uh, is is behind us, the opportunities of addressing and ending uh, malnutrition in North Korea, I think, is a realistic possibility in a fairly uh, short time period. I really think it can be done. We just got to uh, hope that the politics will get addressed and resolved so we can move forward. So in our last minute or two, can you just maybe talk a little bit uh, broadly about the health of the World Food Program right now uh, financially? I mean, I know that on any given year, any given crisis, you're always asking donors for funds to pay for your operations. Um, how well funded are you right now? What's your most urgent appeal? I, I know we talked about Sahel. Um, what, how how do things look for the World Food Program halfway through 2018? Well, there's there's good news and there's bad news. Uh, the bad news is there's more conflict and more problems out there. Uh, the, the the good news is that donors are stepping up, not to the degree that we we our needs are, uh, but they are stepping up. For example, the United States, uh, Germany, the UK, and others. Uh, or stepping up more. Um, when I took this position one year ago, we we were receiving uh, not quite $5.9 billion. Uh, today, I expect 2018, we should end up somewhere between 6 and $7 billion. That's uh, good. Closer, probably, probably closer. You're to a good fundraiser. Billion. Well, you, you, we have a great story to tell. And as I explained to many of the donors, I said, you know, if you want to spend another half a trillion dollars on military operations, then cut the World Food Program because we're the first line of offense and defense against extremism and destabilization. And uh, if we're out there, we can save taxpayers around the world billions of dollars if we come in and do it right. Now, here's what's really bad. Uh, when I took this role a year ago, what we were seeing for the first time in a long time was the food security uh, rate uh, of insecurity going up. The hunger rate went up from from uh, 777 million to 815 million. Now, this past year, now this is the number that's really disturbing. Uh, the number of severely hungry people went up from uh, 80 million 
to 124 million. Uh, that is disastrous. And the number one cause is man-made conflict, whether you're talking Syria or Yemen or Iraq or South Sudan. That's where about 40 to 50 percent of all the funds are going, which is taking monies away from areas that are just vulnerable and fragile and these extremist groups want to exploit. And if we could go into those areas with, with more effective development dollars in terms of agricultural practices and food security, then you'll stabilize the areas. If we don't, we're going to pay for it uh, with destabilization and military action later on. And so we're building the case uh, that you cannot, this is not the time to pull back from the World Food Program and the United Nations. The United Nations, with strategic, effective programs, can truly stabilize a community that will save billions of dollars to taxpayers around the world. And so we're making that case. And so far, the donors are stepping up. But as I say that, uh, we're still a few billion dollars short of what we need uh, to address food security globally. And uh, we're going to continue to make the case, not just to the traditional donors, but also to the private sector. We think that's a long-term solution as well to engage the private sector uh, and how do we do that. And so uh, there's a lot to be done. These are difficult times, but hopefully we will get some of these wars behind us this coming year, like Syria, like Yemen, that will hopefully free up billions of dollars to be put into places like the Sahel, the greater Sahel region, and other fragile uh, areas. Uh, well, David Beasley, thank you so much for your time. I should let you go and, and get back to, to raising that, that money um, and, and doing your work. Thank you. Ha have a good day. I appreciate your time. Hey, thanks, Mark. See you later. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Executive Director David Beasley, Governor David Beasley. Much appreciated uh, him taking his time to speak with me about his recent trips. Uh, you know, these are the kind of issues like food security in the Sahel that should be making headlines, but but do not. And I, I really do like to use this podcast to shine a spotlight on issues that uh, are undercovered in most of the press. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.